Welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout his life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. Well, we are in our very deep study of the book of Daniel, and today we continue in chapter 7 of this great book. We have been introduced to the four beasts that come up out of the seas, and today we get even more information about this and how it affects us in the 21st century. Class teacher Doug Brady is giving us very complete and understandable information that will help us to fully understand what the vision of Daniel really is and how it affects us. If you have not heard the explanation of the four beasts, you need to go back and listen to the prior two lessons to catch up. The Believer's Bible Class is part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. If you are in the area and are looking for deep and understandable Bible study, you would be welcomed in our class. We meet every Sunday morning at 9.15 in LaVorne Hall, located on the lower level of the Worship Center building. Just ask any greeter on campus as you enter and they will be glad to direct you to LaVorne Hall. Our class has over 100 people who regularly attend and all say that they have learned so very much. We look forward to seeing you soon. Now Doug has moved to the podium and is ready to begin the lesson, which he has titled, The Ancient of Days, Part 3. Turn in your Bible to chapter 7 of the book of Daniel and follow along. Here now is our longtime teacher and my good friend, Doug Brady. We are studying the book of Daniel. We are going to try and answer a number of questions over the next few weeks. All of these things that are fixing to happen in Daniel chapter 7, and then that will be pictured in Daniel chapter 9, and then that are going to go on in heavy part in Daniel chapter 11 and 12. Where does that leave me? Will you be a part of that? Well, you may be. I will not. Neither will Damaris, so you're going to have to do some talking to her uh, this afternoon. Well, I'm going up. So, well, I don't want you to hope. I want you to know. And so, Damaris, please talk to him this afternoon so that he knows. Maybe, you know, 1 John 5, 11, 12, 13. So anyway, we're going to be talking a little bit about the rapture. If uh, some of you want to say... Well, I don't know about the rapture. Well, you will, because we're going to talk about it. Now, do you know our country has developed a slogan that was developed first for our military? No man left behind. Then we took that and borrowed it. They put it in the Department of Education, no child left behind. And then, of course, we have it today, no one left behind in Afghanistan. But... Unfortunately, it's not true, is it? You promise not to desert your country, and then your country deserts you. But we will leave that subject, because I want to talk about the dream in chapter 7, because it's foundational to understanding the rest of the book. You remember, this vision 
had is like a one-act play with three scenes, three scenes. And we're going to be looking at scene two and scene three. We looked at scene one last time, two and three today. Before we go any farther, let's ask God to bless our study. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the time that we could gather here together and we could understand what it is you have planned for our future. Help us to see that because the things you predicted to occur in the past have occurred so exactly the way you told us that we can believe and count on, that we can rely on and use as evidence for your deity the things that are going to come forth in the future. I pray, Father, that no one in our class will be left behind. I pray that you will help us to understand what it is that you are planning and how it's going to work. Now, Father, help us to be able to understand the nature of these things so that we can share them with others who don't know you to warn them about what is preparing to happen. We have never been, Father, in a situation in our country where things are so uncertain, where there are so many fears, and most of them rightly so if you don't know you and know that you're in control and know that you have a plan that you're going to fulfill no matter what man does. And so I pray, Father, that as we study this book, you will open it up to us. And I just want to thank you for caring about us and loving us the way that you do. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Looking back real quick, in the opening part of chapter 7, we have this vision that Daniel sees, and it has uh, these four beasts coming out of the sea, the great wash of humanity. There's the lion that was uh, Babylon. There's the bear that was Medo-Persia. There's the, the leopard that was uh, Greece and the Grecian influence. And then there's this fourth beast that is indescribable because of how monstrous and terrific it is. And you remember, this is a beast that's two-part. It starts out as the Roman Empire. And the beast itself represents the Roman Empire. But then this fourth beast sprouts these ten horns. And these ten horns represent, maybe you could say, a revival of the Roman Empire. But another empire, a fifth empire that's going to emerge. Because after Rome, we never had a world empire. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't people who tried. Charlemagne tried, but he failed. Napoleon tried, but he failed. But shall we say the uh, British Empire tried, and they failed. The Axis powers, Germany, Italy, and Japan, they tried, but they failed. The Soviet Union tried. But it failed. But now this fourth Roman Empire is going to emerge in a new kingdom, the kingdom of ten horns. It will be a confederacy of ten powers across the world, controlling the whole world. We think, how can that be? Do you not hear all of these people who are in the elite saying, uh, we're, we're a global nation now? John Kerry who I wouldn't normally quote for something positive, was addressing the 
graduating class, I believe it was from the Air Force Academy, and he said, you're graduating into a world with no borders. That's what they think. That's what they want. That's what they are trying to use. And there's something with a letter, with a number 19 at the end of it, that they are using mightily to bring about what they want and what they are trying to do. That's what's coming. And there are people like that. And they think they are using a lot of their means and and people and government. They don't realize they're being used by someone. You know, it's interesting. I'm going to show you what a smart teacher you have. I got in a discussion with my wife a little while back, and she said, tell me Satan's real name. And I said, well, everybody knows Satan's real name. Oh, yes. Well, then tell me what it is. I said, well, it's Lucifer. Lucifer is Satan's real name. That's the name that God gave him. She said, Doug, you're wrong. I said, no, Julie, you're wrong. I know this. She said, why don't you get in the scripture and look it up? (laughs) So I went to the New American Standard, did a search for Lucifer. You know, Lucifer, that name is not in the New American Standard text. Uh, So I went to the version that she loves so much, and that's the King James. It appears one time. It appears one time in Isaiah 14.7, I believe it is. And it translates as Lucifer. That's not his name. Hillel ben Shekar is his name. There's three words. You might want to look that up. It goes to show that your teacher's not that smart and his wife is brilliant. But anyway... I, I see how when I admitted that, I admitted it very fast. Verse 12, thank you. I wasn't going to say that because it's so embarrassing, but, you know, you have to give credit where credit is due. Now, as we looked through this passage in, at the start, in chapter 7, we're talking about the little horn. Do you remember the little horn? I call him the big-mouthed horn. And he uses a name for God that I thought was interesting. Do you remember what that name was? The Most High. The Most High. And I started thinking, where do you hear that name? Other than the book of Daniel, do you hear that name anywhere else in the Bible? Well, yes, you do. Who uses it? Let me show you three passages. In Luke chapter 1, verse 35 It says, the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child will be called the Son of God. Do you know, anybody know who's speaking there? Gabriel is. Who's he speaking to? Gabriel, an angelic being, uses the term the Most High. In Luke 8, 28, it says, seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, What business do I have, what business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God, I beg you do not torment me. That's an angelic being too, only he's fallen and he's demonic. He uses the term Most High or the Most High God. In Acts chapter 16, verse 17, following after Paul and us, she kept crying out and saying, these men are bond servants of the Most High God who are proclaiming you the way of salvation. It was a demonic being too. The demons and the angels use that term. Isn't that interesting? The most high God. Do you ever use it? 
Should maybe in our prayer time, we spend more time praying in the name of the Most High God. People who have seen him face to face and know him for certain, that's the word and that's the term they use. Now, I want to show you something here because as we get into chapter 7, starting at verse 9, Act 2 and Act 3, we're going to need to come to grips with a question that we don't know. And here's a chart, I think, is next that I want you to see. Now, we could have a lot more complex and complicated charts, but I don't like that because it's very difficult to really understand. We are right here in the church age. Daniel was talking about this time of the tribulation where the little horn, the 11th horn, Mr. Big Mouth, is going to, to be in control. Now, what is going to happen in these next three events we're talking about? You see the second advent, that's when Jesus comes back. You see the millennial kingdom, that's the kingdom for a thousand years. Number one, when is this judgment going to occur that's in Daniel chapter 7? The judgment, I think, is going to be right here. Some people say, oh, no, it's over here, the great white throne judgment. We'll talk about that. I think the judgment we're talking about here is right here, and I will show you why, and then you can make up your own mind. There's a second event, and that's a destruction of the little big horn, and that's right here, right at the end of the tribulation period. And then there's the turnover of the kingdom, which is number three, that's going to be right at the start of the millennial kingdom, that God the Father is going to turn this kingdom over to his son. Do you remember what name he's going to use to refer to him? Well, we'll find that out. So let's look for just a second in Daniel chapter 7, starting in verse 9. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat, and the vesture, and his vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool, and the throne was ablaze with flames, and its wheels were burning with fire. A fire, a river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him, and thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him, and the court sat and the books were open. Let's stop there for just a second. The courts sat and the books were open. Who is this judge? He's the Ancient of Days. Uh, Yatik Yomin is his name in Aramaic here. And in fact, this is the only name of God that's only spoken in Aramaic because of the Ancient of Days doesn't occur anywhere else in the Scripture. And this portion of Daniel, of course, you remember, is written in Aramaic. Yatik uh, Yomim. It would be Yatik Yomim if it was in Hebrew. But it's not. It's in Aramaic. And so I want you to see, first of all, something. Was there one throne set up? For this person, Yatik Yomin. No, there was a lot of thrones, a number of thrones. Now, in Paul's day, what branch or branches of government did a throne represent? It represented the executive branch and the judicial branch. For example, when Paul was being tried, who was the final judge? The emperor. Do you see that? In a kingdom, it's the king. He many times is the final judge. There may be an intermediate judge. But the throne is a mixture of the executive branch and the judicial branch. Now, of course, in our country, we believed that shouldn't be. And there should be a balance of powers, and it shouldn't be ever the same person. But the thrones are set up. 
he sits. Now, it talks about this, his vesture was like white of snow, speaking of purity. The hair on his head was like wool, pure white after, if you've ever seen sheep after they've been shorn, just pure white. They're dirty on the outside, but when you shear them, it's just pure white. Now, pure white also there is speaking of his purity. It's also speaking about his eternality, that he's been around forever. Was there ever a time that God wasn't around? No, there wasn't. Now, it speaks of his throne, which seems to be fire. He's sitting on a throne of fire. And this throne has wheels on it. And the wheels are on fire. Now, is there any other place where it talks about wheels in relation to God? Damaris, would you know a place? Ezekiel. Exactly right. It's the only other place where the throne and, and God speaks of wheels and on fire. But I want you to see that they are now... This river of fire is flowing out from him. Now, there's two sets of numbers there that we need to see. There's thousands upon thousands attending him, and there's myriads upon myriads appearing before him. Which is bigger? The myriads. That's bigger. You know, they don't have numbers in these days like billions and trillions because they didn't have anything that would go up that high. But this is the way they're trying to say it. Now... What is usually the purpose of those who are behind the thousands upon thousands? They are supporting this judgment. They are here as part of whoever is sitting in the judgment seat here, the Ancient of Days. The ones before many times are those being judged. Now, there's two views here. Some people believe those are all angels or angelic beings. Others believe, no, those are humans and human beings, and some people want to mix them. I am of the picture or the thinking that the ones behind are human, the ones in front are human. That is, there's going to be a judgment here. Angels have already been judged. I, the angels could be part of the thousands and thousands behind, but if that were true, there would be a lot more than thousands of thousands because of the number of times of the angel, angelic being. And this, now, this first part of this verse through 10 is the finish of, or the first part of this second scene. Now look what he says in verse 11. Then I kept looking because the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. And I kept looking until the beast was slain and his body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. Now, first of all, this is a courtroom and judgment is being rendered. This is a judgment from which no appeal can be taken. All of those groups... Well, I'm not going to mention some of these groups that are always appealing any death sentence that comes down in our country. Uh, you know their names. They're not going to be around to make any appeal. In fact, their judgment is coming up very soon, usually. But what I want to say is, and we need to understand, who is this person sitting on that throne? That's what we need to understand. Who is it? There's two views. Number one, that it's Jesus. Number two, that it's God the Father. 
How about those who say it's Jesus? One of the things they will say is, they'll say, look at John 4, 24. Jesus is speaking and he says, God, so obviously God the Father, is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. They will also go on to say, and in uh, say, John 5, 27a, and he gave him authority to execute judgment. Now, that's they're saying that the Father gave the Son authority to execute judgment. Does the fact that God is a spirit being mean that he cannot enable us to see him? Or he could not enable Daniel in this vision to see him? Well, is, are the angels spirit beings? They are spirit beings. But there are spirit beings, angelic beings. I think Jesus is a spirit being. Can, could Jesus be here and you not see him and notice that he's here at all? Or could he cause you to see him? Do you remember what he did with John in the first chapter of the book of Revelation? He appeared and he saw him. Just because the Father is spirit doesn't mean he can't be seen if he doesn't want to be seen. So we got to ask these questions. How can we determine that this is the Father and not Jesus or a mixture of the two? And has there any, been any other time where Jesus and God appear differently away from each other? So let's look and let's see. I'm going to start with Daniel 7.13. And let's read it. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient days and was presented to him. Now, who is the son of man? Over 80 times in the New Testament, Jesus refers to himself as the son of man. So now you can't have the son of man, Jesus, appearing before Yatikimin if Yatikimin is Jesus also. So the two. Separate beings here. Number two, I want you to see this. In John chapter 5, verse 27, a verse we used before, Jesus confirms that he is the Son of Man. Look what it says. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So we know for certain that Jesus is the Son of Man. Now, look what he says. Does the Father have a form? In John 5, 37, 38, and the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. So Jesus is talking. He's saying, the Father has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice or at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe in him who he sent. Now, he's talking to the Pharisees, people on Satan's side. Now, does the Father have a voice? How do you know? How about when Jesus was baptized? Did the Father speak? How about on the Mount of Transfiguration? Did the Father speak? Yes, he did. He also has a form. The form here is depicted in Daniel 7, 13. This is the first place, though, in the Bible where the God the Father is described. Now, I ask the question, is there any other place in the Scripture where it mentions the distinction between the Father and the Son, where you can see the Father and you can see the Son, at least through the eyes of the writer. Well, let's turn to Revelation, maybe chapter 4, start with. Let's look at this. John is speaking, he says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. 
And the voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up, and I will show you what things must take place. Now, let's stop right there. Whose voice is that? All right, all right. Think again now. This is the voice John said that he had heard before. When had he heard a voice? In John, in Revelation chapter 1. And what did it sound like? It sounded like the sound of a trumpet of many waters, loud. He's describing the voice of Jesus, who it was clear in John, I mean, in Revelation chapter 1, was the one who appeared and spoke to John. So he said, come up. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven. And, you know, now why was it not set in heaven? But no, it was standing in heaven. And the one sitting, uh, was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. Now, here's the throne in heaven. Who was sitting on that throne? That's what we need to see. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardis in appearance. And there was a rainbow between the throne like an emerald in appearance. Now, look at verse 5. And out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds of peals and thunder and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, what you're seeing is a vision of the Trinity here to start with. In front of the throne, though, are these lamps which represent the Holy Spirit in his seven aspects. All right? Now, let's go on here in verse uh, 1 of chapter 5. And I saw the right hand of him who sat on the throne... I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. So how did John respond to that? Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or look into it. Now, there's four elders up there sitting in four thrones. And one of them is going to speak. And I would describe it basically like a high school football coach. He's going to say, stop weeping. Would you quit crying? Cry, baby, is basically what he is saying here in the Greek. Uh, Be cold. The lion... That is in the tribe, that is from the tribe of Judah, the root have David has overcome so as to open the book and break its seals. Now, is there any question in our mind who that person is? No, that's Jesus, without a question. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders of the Lamb, and the elders, a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God coming out of the earth. I want to ask you something. Has Satan ever seen Jesus Christ like that before? Yes, he has. Why do you think this beast that comes out has seven heads? Counterfeit. Counterfeit. That's what he's doing. But now, and he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So who's sitting on the throne holding the book? God the Father. Have I convinced you yet? You would think not. But John so wants to know what's in that book. You see, I would say, no, only John. I would say, you know, if it was me, I can tell you, 
I would say, well, God will let us know in his time. My wife, on the other hand, I have to know, and I have to know now. Please tell us. So we're going through, and we're seeing this, and he came. And when he took the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense. And you know what that incense is in those golden bowls? The prayers of the saints. Your prayers may be in one of those golden bowls. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your own, with your blood, men from every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation. And you made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth forever. So I'm going to tell you that my position is very clear. The Ancient of Days is God the Father. And you're able to see him through Daniel's eyes, in the vision that God the Father gave Daniel. And this name is a name that emphasizes God's eternality. But now we're sitting at judgment, and we want to find out whose judgment is this? Who is presided over by the Ancient of Days when these books are open? Now, you notice it says books. We're going to come to see the books are refined a little bit because John is going to give us a little more information. I want you to know that God keeps two sets of books. Now, some of you think, wait a second, two sets of books? That's not good. That's bad. That's what people do when they cheat. No, not with God. There's two sets of books because there's two important records to keep. I'm going to try and explain those to you here in just a second, these, these two sets of books. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 12, when the great white throne judgment occurs, it says this, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were open, and another book was open. That's the two sets of books. The books and a book, which was, or which is the book of life. The another book, the singular book, is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things that were written in the books according to their deeds. Now, let's make sure we understand. There's two sets of books. One's the book of life, and one's the book that has the deeds and acts and thoughts of every human being that's going to be judged in those books. We would be flabbergasted if we knew how God could store all this information and access it instantaneously. But he can. And that's, that's what he's going to do. And I think maybe all of these things are not recorded where you can read them. They're recorded where you can see them. And he's going to show. So if you're in this judgment, which you do not want to be, the video may be shown of things that you've done. And I don't know, it may be that that video is able to be seen by everyone. Here's the, here's the thing, though, I want you to remember, Kim. Those videos on you will not be shown because Jesus died because of what you did in those videos. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. It's not happening. I see a lot of you that are feeling much better about that. Let's read on because I want you to see this. If anyone's name, verse 15, how do, well, let's ask this. How do the people fare in this judgment uh, who weren't in the book of life? Not too well. In Revelation 20, 15, it says, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. 
Now, that's pretty serious. Now, let me just make a comment here. There are some people who have now started teaching the doctrine of annihilation. Doctrine of annihilation is a Jehovah's Witness doctrine. What it says is, you're only in hell for a while, and then you just disappear. God's not going to punish you forever. I could name some names of some people. You would probably be shocked that they are saying that. But who's the first one in the lake of fire? The beast and the false prophet. Not Satan. The beast and the false prophet. Now, after a thousand years, have those two been annihilated when Satan gets put into the... No, they're still there. They're going to be there to greet their old friend, Hillel ben Shekhar. Not Lucifer. You've got to remember that. So, let's look at this second book for just a second. The book of life. Does it appear anywhere else in the scripture? Well, it just so happens it appears multiple places. In Philippians 4, uh, verse 3, it says, Paul's writing, Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of her fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. In Revelation 13, 8, it says, all who dwell on the earth will worship him, and everyone uh, whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has sent him. There it is, the book of life. In Revelation 17, verse 8, it says this, The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth, whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will wonder when they see the beast and that he was and he is not and he is to come. And finally, a passage from Revelation 21, starting in verse 25 in the daytime, for there will be no nights, its gates will never be closed, and they will never bring, and they will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it, and nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination or lying shall ever come into it. That's the New Jerusalem. But only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, as you heard me read those, there's two passages that ought to give you a clue to this next question. When were the names written in the Lamb's book of life? Foundation of the world. Now, this is a much more difficult question. Whose names were written in the Lamb's book of life at the foundation of the world? Now, you say everyone. Even the ones who are going into the lake of fire? Well, let me ask you this. If the names written in the book of life at the foundation of the world, some of them are going to go to the lake of fire then that would mean when the judgment times comes, those names would no longer be there, correct? That's correct. That would be your position. Now, Damaris, is that your position? Now, notice I'm not asking Don what his position is on this. But uh, you're with them. Well, then you're wise in your old age. Uh, well, this word, first of all, the way it is, it is written in the Greek in verses Revelation 13.8 and 17.8, you know, has been written since the foundation, has been written or has not been written, but the verb is not, doesn't include the not, it's just has been written. It's this Greek word grapho. And this verb is perfect tense, passive voice, indicative mood. What does that mean? Well, indicative mood means a statement of fact. It's a statement of fact. It's not questionable. Number two, passive. 
Passive indicates that a person who is not the subject of the sentence is the one writing the name. So the person himself didn't write his name in the book. Someone else wrote his name there. Now, the most important thing here is that it's perfect tense. Because perfect tense speaks of a particular action in the past that is done and completed. No, that's more imperfect. In, in, in the Greek, perfect tense is particular in action at a point in time. We can look at that and I'll show you. No, Eris is just past tense. But let's look further as we go that Weist is the one who I read on this and indicates that that's the case here. So what we've got is those whose name was not permanently written in the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world. That's what that tells us, that grammar, not permanently written. So you mean names can be eliminated? Well, let's look. Someone indicated and offered to God to take his name out. Moses, Exodus chapter 32, verse 32. But now, Moses talking to God, if you will forgive their, if you will forgive them sin, and if not, please blot me out from your book which you have written. Well, that's a rather serious position for Moses to be taking, but he knew God loved him. Psalm 69:28, "May they be blotted out of the book of life, and may they not be recorded with the righteous." That's a rather strong statement to make someone. Revelation 3, 5, he who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Do you see what's happening here? Do you see what's going on? Now, we've understood the books. We've understood who's the judge, who's being judged here. We need to see this because I think it's important for, for us to see when you look at this passage, it's clear that the one who's being judged is the little horn. You say, wait a second. Yeah. No, that's what it's saying. I kept, verse 11, I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. And I kept looking until the beast was slain and his body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. What's the burning fire? The, you know, that sounds redundant, but not if you're talking about the lake of fire. And it caused the lake of fire, normal fire consumes whatever it's burning. The lake of fire does not. It never goes out. It's never consumed. It's always burning. And that's what is going on here. And who was it? The beast, the Antichrist. That's who's being judged here. And when was he judged? At the end of the tribulation, immediately before the start of the millennial kingdom. Now, do you remember what it says about the rest of human beings? Uh, coming up there. It says, for the rest of the beasts, their dominion, now the, those beasts would be all four, their dominion was taken away, they weren't in charge, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. Now, if you think about that, that is a very, very scary statement. Why is that such a scary statement? Well, where are those people being kept? Hades. Hebrew Sheol, the place of the departed dead. That place is considered given more life before what? The lake of fire. That's saying the lake of fire is so much worse than Hades, where Hades was terrible. 
You remember the rich man in Lot? If he could just dip his finger in some water and put it on my tongue, that's all I'm asking. Abraham's bosom. But rich man and, not Lot, but rich man and Lazarus. Excuse me. Now, let's look real quick at the second act that I want you to see. Daniel 7, starting verse 13. And I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. That's the millennial kingdom. And that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And then the sovereignty, the dominion, and greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. Who is that dominion going to be given to? You. You will sit and reign during the millennial kingdom. There will be a throne for you. Say, well, I don't know much about thrones. Well, you're going to learn because you're going to be given authority. Now, you go forward and you see this and his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and the dominions will serve and obey him. Now, he, come, he comes in the clouds of heaven and appears before the Ancient of Days. And this is the picture of God the Son and God the Father talking. Have God the Son and God the Father talked much before? Of course they have. Didn't they talk in the creation? Let us make man in our image and in our likeness. One of the best things I know, our favorite places they talk, is in Psalm 110, 1 and 2. The passage that Jesus said to shut up the Pharisees forever and they never asked him any more questions after that. You might look at that and see what it says. Now, we've already touched on Revelation 5. I want to go on and I want to say this. Some scholars say Jesus used the term son of man 81 times. Some say 82 times. I say 80 plus times. But I can tell you there was a time in my spiritual life that used to frustrate me. Why do you use the term son of man? People say you never claim to be God. Why didn't you use the name son of God 81 times? Then nobody could dispute what you're claiming. Jesus, come on. Wouldn't that have been much smarter? And of course, he had to show me that I'm much dumber. But let's look at this. There are a number of other names he had used and could have used. He could have used Lord, which means he's the master. He used Messiah. Do you know how many times he referred to himself as Messiah, though? Once. Only once. Do you know who he was talking to at the time? The lady at the well, a Samaritan. When talking to the Jews, he was talking to Samaritan. Now, he did use the, use the term Son of God is used. It speaks of his divinity. The term Son of David is used, speaks of his royalty, refers to himself as the bridegroom. But he chose to use the Son of Man most often. Why? It conveys the two chief aspects of his person. You see, when Jesus came to earth, he was not just the Son of God. He was the Son of Man. In other words, he was fully human and fully God. Now, some want to say, well, how can that be? No, he'd have to be half human, half God. No. Fully human, fully God. The hypostatic union. It's very important to understand that he's all God, he's all human. Why did he have to be human? Because God can't die. 
the human could die. But he's fully human, fully God. That's the son of man. That's what that means. Now, understand, does that mean he's not claiming to be God himself? Oh, no. No. Look in Matthew 26, starting in verse 62. They're trying Jesus. And Annas is there. And the high priest stood up and he said to him, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent and raged him. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, that is the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I will tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Where is he quoting? Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Then the high priest tore his robes, which is against the law, and said, he is blasphemed. What are they saying when he's blasphemed? He's calling himself God. We're going to kill him. He deserves to die, and they all voted to kill him. Now, one of the purposes of this name, it has no excess baggage attached to it. It speaks that he's preexistent. It's the name that he used to teach the need for suffering. And he used it to teach personal salvation through him and him alone. And of course, it's the name that speaks of final judgment. In light of this preferred name, how should we picture Jesus? Some of us want to picture Jesus and always show him as a little baby in a, in a, in a crib. Or a little baby, you know, in the stable. No, we shouldn't have that. That's not the way to picture Jesus. Some people... And if I make you mad, I'm sorry. But if I agreed with you, then we'd both be wrong. Some of us want to wear a cross with a dead Jesus hanging on it. That's not him. He's not dead anymore. Why do you want to picture that? If you wear a cross, it should be an empty cross. If we could figure out a good way to portray a grave, we should wear an empty grave. Because that's where the victory was. And that's what we should show. We should see him through the eyes of Jesus. I mean, through the eyes of John. If you see him in Revelation 1, 9 through 17, and we don't have time to go through that today, uh, read that today, but I want you to see it. But before we finish, I want to ask you some questions. Who rules history? God rules history. The kings of Babylon tried to defy him, but to no avail. In the end, we are all brought to judgment because God is in control. Now, if God rules history, who rules the future? God. I don't want you to ever think that your talents, your achievements, or your positions are self-generated. They are God-given. Matthew tells us in chapter 24 that God is given, has things working according to his plan, which is based upon his love, his justice, and his all-knowing wisdom. He is working on that. That's part of his plan. Therefore, since God rules the future, should we ever plan anything without praying? Well, what about small things that we can handle ourselves? No, that's a mistake that Satan tries to get us to use many times. If God's not in our plans, we're wasting our time. We must respond to the, God's, the guidance that God gives us. Then he gives us more. You say, well, he didn't tell me enough to make all my plans complete. That's because you're not ready for what he wants to tell you. But if you give him a chance, you see, obedience is reflected as a reflection of faith. 
So do what he tells you to do, and then he'll tell you the next, the rest, the, the finishing part. Now, this man, the beast, is going to be horribly wicked. He is going to do things that are just horrible. Horrible, horrible, horrible. And there are pastors and teachers all across this country, especially they're putting their stuff on the internet, and they would tell you, I can't believe you're listening to that guy Brady. I can't believe that you're listening to that guy Jeffress. They are not preparing you the way you need to be prepared. You are going to have to deal with the Antichrist. You are going to need to be prepared. And they're not even warning you. He's going to pay for it one day, speaking of me, that I didn't prepare you. And you're going to curse my name because I didn't prepare you for how to deal with the Antichrist. I am not going to prepare you for how to deal with the Antichrist because when he takes over, you will not be there. Now, there's a lot of people say, how do you know that? Well, I know that some of you, especially like Dawn, have spent a lot of times with me studying the rapture. But we're going to do it some more. I want everybody to know. Why? Because look how fast things are happening today. Things that we didn't think would be true five years ago are now true. Who would think in America you can't travel without a passport? Or just across state lines. If you go to New York, you have to have a passport to get into a grocery store. New York City, I mean. Yes. Well, I'm not going to say anything about New York City. But the fact is, that is something that we are going to get into. And we are going to look because I think it's important. So let's close in a word of prayer. And if you have any questions, but let's pray. Father, I thank you for the time that we could spend today studying these things. Help me as I study to show just the right things. Help me to prepare my class. No, help me to prepare your class for what's coming up and what they are going to have to face so that they can share the wonderful gift of the rapture with other people so that they can see the need to spread your word so that we won't be left behind. You know, Father, I, I, it is my open prayer that everybody in this room today can say for certainty they would not be left behind. And, and if they can, I pray that you'll have them come talk to me. But I know for certain that everybody in this room knows some people who very well could be left behind. Help us to show them the urgency of coming to meet their God personally and having the ability to have a personal relationship with him. Help us to be diligent in that. Help us to be faithful in that, Father. Help us to see the need and that the need is growing more and more urgent all the time. Pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.